If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here, Scott Thompson. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. You're saying, why are we pi- uh, playing the Patsy Cline? Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gather around. Listen to the late, great Patsy Cline right here on the Haystack Hayride. Uh, Patsy Cline, number 13 on Rolling Stone's Top 200 Singers of All Time, uh, which came out, of course, uh, in the new year. Number 13, Patsy Cline. There you go. Uh, we're going through as many as we can that Daddy likes uh, between now and the end of the month. We're going to milk this puppy for everything we possibly can. Uh, what else we got? Oh, good afternoon. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, I got to confess right now, I got COVID. <laughs> so I think we just get that out of the way uh, right away, you know. Uh, so if you want to back, uh, you know, uh, two meters away from your radio or your device or your uh, whatever it is you're listening to us on, you may want to, you might want to, or maybe just put a mask over it. Uh, anyway, um, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I've been vaccinated. So it's, um, you know, it's all manageable. And the great thing uh, about the technology we have is that we can work from home. So the Scott Thompson Home Show, alive and well, just like the good old days. Um, what else we got? Oh, so, um, yeah. So uh, we went to a hockey tournament on um, on uh, the weekend and we lost the cup, but we won this. So you know, there's lots of ways to look at this. Uh, but anyway, so I'm just going to uh, hustle through it. Again, it's... Um, I've had this is my second time getting it, and uh, not as bad as the first time. It was pretty. It was it was not fun, and uh, but I think that was Delta. Um, this is obviously Omicron, the new version. And uh, what do I feel like? I feel kind of fluish, uh, more symptoms of cold, uh, uh, scratchy throat, that sort of thing. Um, you know, some sweats and stuff like that. But you know, mild, much milder than uh, what I got the first time. So that has something to say about the vaccinations we encourage you all to get uh, updated on yours because you never know when all of a sudden you're going to get hit again so uh there you go what else we got oh so um um so if i start to tail off towards the end of the show you'll (laughs) start start to do the head depths or the tylenol wears off uh you'll understand where i'm coming from uh but yeah all good nothing to fear honestly um but again take your precautions do what you need to do all right um jugmeet singh and the ndp very critical of the uh liberals today is anybody listening to anything that this man says every time i see him try to speak he looks like he's got something in his mouth that he really doesn't like and um you know he he, he can pull the trigger on this government at any time Time that he wants and instead gives us the same old jargon with no new ideas uh, talking again about health care uh, and, and, and just willing to spend more money on the same failing health care model um, giving us the same uh, you know lines that we hear uh, over and over and over and over again and you know a vision but never a plan here's the latest from Jugmeet Singh of the NDP Good jobs and working people's incomes are enough to afford to pay the bills. A fridge stocked with healthy food and savings for the future. And that everyone is able to find a safe and affordable home that fits their family. 
We envision healthcare that's ready for you when you need it. Hospitals that are properly staffed so workers always have the time to listen and to care. Healthcare that includes dental care and prescription medicine. We believe no one should have to rack up bills in order to stay healthy. All right. And uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't that sound great, though? Just what in a utopian world that sounds like, which we've been hearing for decades and decades and decades, but never a plan. We know what the vision is, but how do you get there? And uh, again, trying to sell the same old system to Canadians is like trying to sell us a rotary phone. It really is. And again, he's blaming the prime minister whose government used to be center left and has now gone to the extreme left into a partnership with the NDP. He's now complaining about the guy he signed a deal with and could take to an election. While Daniel Smith and Doug Ford and Heather Stephenson launch a mission to privatize public universal Canadian health care, Justin Trudeau does nothing. And Pierre Polyev cheers them on. In fact, the prime minister has an opportunity right now to protect Medicare. While negotiating funding with the provinces, we all agree there should be strings attached. Of course, I think one of those conditions has to be straight up no privatization. <laughs> Hello? Hello? Are you aware it's 2023? Are you aware that there's like 900 of these clinics already in operation and have been for decades? Decades? I mean, like, what planet are these leaders on? This has been going on forever. There's nothing new here. It's just expanding what we already know works. The Ontario Medical Association, the Ontario Hospital Association, all endorse Doug Ford's plan to reform health care. If you disagree, where's your idea? And why are we waiting decades to hear it? We had an academic on yesterday. What should he do? Well, he shouldn't be doing this. He should be hiring more doctors. And it's like, oh, man. Around and around and around and around we go. And everybody talks about all this private money, all this, you're making other people rich. The only people that are making money off the current failing system are the unions, the organizations, and the associations that are still supporting pouring bad, uh, good money after bad and, this, and propping up the same system. It's 2023. We have to look at things differently. And honestly, as much as it hurts everybody to finally agree that Doug Ford has made a step in the right direction, and it is killing the left, it is killing the left to have to admit that this isn't a bad idea. And you know, just maybe, just maybe, it'll be health care that brings this dang country and province back to the center where the majority of the population lies. Maybe health care is, sorry, maybe uh, people in the center who are supporting this will finally blaze a trail and leave the extreme left and the extreme right in their shadow. Because to me, what we have just seen in the last 24, 48 hours is the center saying, we have had enough. We want 
action. And that's what we have. All right. This is pretty exciting. Tesla, uh, and we all know how the discussion of EVs has turned over the last little while, is eyeing Ward 7's Limeridge Mall to be home of their largest retail and service center in Canada. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Esther Pauls, Ward 7 counselor, and with us now. Esther, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, I'm well, and I'm, I'm also excited about sharing the news uh, for Tesla. So, yes, I'm glad to be on. So this is pretty cool. Tell us what you know, Esther, because I know there are some obstacles here. Um, normally, I guess, uh, car uh, uh, places like this aren't allowed near malls and such. So tell us about the project and some of the obstacles. Well, uh, back in November, I received a call from Michael uh, Pearson from uh, CF uh, Limeridge and told me the exciting news that they wanted to uh, open a hub for Tesla. And uh, the only um, uh, problem was one minor variant that the city had to do, and that is because it's not only selling the cars, but also to service the cars. So in order to do that, they have to have a certain uh, minor variant. So he was all excited, so they signed this non-binding letter, uh, from the real estate um, from uh, Tesla, and they're just waiting for the minor variance. Now, February 2nd, they will um, uh, be in front of the um, uh, Committee of Adjustment, and if that goes through, it's exciting for the city of Hamilton to welcome the hub uh, of Tesla being here. Uh, so you talk... Judge? Uh, no, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, the exciting thing is there'll be an extra 55 people with jobs. And you know what, uh, Scott, I always wonder, uh, every time I go to Lime Ridge Mall, I always see those 20-stall superchargers on the west side of the mall. Hmm. And I'm wondering, where are the cars? And now we can actually say we will have the cars to sell to use the 20-stall superchargers. So it is exciting news. So uh, you talked about this being a hub, so it's not just a place to sell, but they service the vehicles as well. Um, how does that change things? Um, uh, is that the is that sort of the entirety of the project? Is there more to it than that? Well, basically, it's the hub for uh, uh, the southern Ontario. So we're going right. to get people from all over coming, you know, even right. from the state. And when yeah. I was talking to Michael, he said having them there. Uh, attracts other business to come, you know, yeah. uh, like Apple and all different kinds of uh, other business that want to do uh, business here in Hamilton. So not only are we getting Tesla, but I believe once we open this, once we have the cars, other business would want to come in. And um, so uh, it is exciting news. As you know, it's going to be at the back of uh, 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 the mall uh, where I think... Um, it was, uh, uh, I don't know, it was a store that hasn't been used for a while. It was closed right. down. So uh, it's going to be exciting because of the attraction of a different uh, area of people coming to look at Tesla and to buy them and to also fix them so they have a place where they can fix their Tesla. Uh, what about dates? Do we know anything about a timeline here, Esther? Well, as soon as February 2nd, we get from the city that the variance uh, is um, uh, okay, then I believe that uh, uh, Limeridge Mall is going to do the construction and the inside and what they need. And then they would have to really uh, sign the, the binding letter 
uh, saying yes that they are coming. So I think it depends up to February 2nd. And I, I want to tell you, I think Limeridge and, uh, would want to, uh, move quickly. Uh, because uh, it's been um, sitting empty for so long, and uh, we need more business here. So I think within next year, it'll be open for sure. And there's no reason to really think this is going to get stalled at City Hall. It, it just seems to, as you're saying, it'll get it'll get through no problem. I I believe it will get through no problem. I've uh, in November I sort of you know asked around, and I think it's a minor. We have to. Uh, it's not a major construction or anything. Right. The, nobody opposing. Uh, so I think it's one minor variance that uh, they wanted to make sure uh, it goes through before they signed it. So I think it's exciting. I think it's uh, we need that at Limeridge Mall. We need more um, more business there. Uh, but it would be nice to see those 20 stall superchargers all full of cars. In the <laughs> so uh, this is a very odd situation, Esther. We're almost looking at this like it's an attraction. What sort of spinoff are you hoping from this? I mean, obviously, I think it's, like you said, it's going to draw people from all over to the mall itself. But do you foresee any spinoff? I don't know what that be, what that would be regarding automotive or what have you, uh, or just the novelty of it all. I think not only the novelty, I really believe the spin-off is uh, other people coming in, like you said, and people shopping at other stores. You know, they come in, yeah. and then they would uh, not only shop, go eat in Hamilton while they come, because I heard it's the hub of southern Ontario will be the only one. So people are coming from everywhere, and they see our city of Hamilton, how beautiful it is, and they'll spend their money here, and it'll improve um, have we just lost Esther? Oh, man. Oh. All right. Uh, Esther said, I think this is going to be the biggest one, but I believe Tesla is also in the process of opening a sales service and delivery center in October, in Etobicoke. However, I believe this would be um, the biggest one in the area, that's for sure. And it is, um, you know, when you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, that could work. Uh, so here's what ha- here, here's, um, you know, here's to it happening and hopefully uh, visions at the city move forward on all of this. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if this ever happens and and if it is successful. All right, uh, Esther Paul's Ward 7 Counselor talking about Lime Ridge Mall as a location for a Tesla hub. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. And as I've said many times on this show, uh, anytime it gets a little too complicated uh, down here on Earth, it's cool to go up into space and see what's going on uh, up there. And, uh, you know, if you look up in, the, say, the coming weeks, you may see a green comet. It's not exactly a once-in-a-generation event, uh, because I think the last time it came around, it was seen by uh, Neanderthals. <laughs> is, is that true? Dr. Elena Hyde is with us, Director Alan Carswell, Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy, York University, and with us now. Elena, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, absolutely. We are getting properly excited about this comment. It is not visible with the naked eye, but we did have a lot of fun watching it with the telescopes at the Alan Carswell Observatory last weekend. Um, it is a pretty interesting comment. As you say, it doesn't come around that often. So it came around, and then we're going to get to see it again, again February 1st. Is that accurate? 
It's on its way around. So this comet came from far, far out in the solar system. It, we think it actually came from a region called the Oort Cloud. And the last time it would have uh, come around, we think, might have been about 50,000 years ago or during the last ice age. And because of the way this comet is running through the solar system, going past the sun, um, it's not going to reach its closest point to Earth until February 1st or 2nd. And after that, it's probably going to just uh, keep on going and not come back to the inner solar system, um, is currently what astronomers estimate. So this is something that we're probably not going to get a chance to see again. So this comet 2022 E3 ZTF, um, because astronomers are not great at naming things. So, well, probably easier now. Uh, 50,000 years ago, uh, has it aged well? What makes it different from others? Well, the location out in the Oort cloud is a little bit special because this is so far away from our own sun that things get extremely, extremely cold and being not hot means they don't emit a lot of light. They're also very small, so it's really hard for us to probe or view the idea of what all is out there in the Oort cloud unless a little piece of it does come into the inner solar system and gets heated up by the sun, and then we can see it. And, of course, this green color uh, sort of captures the imagination a little bit. It is actually green. If you have binoculars, uh, binoculars or a small telescope, you can just see that green color um, coming off of this comet due to outgassing. Um, it has a specific chemical in it called uh, diatomic carbon, that in the outgassing creates this really interesting color that we don't often see a lot in the sky. So it's out. It's green because it is from so far out there and has uh, different ingredients, for lack of well, a better it's word. Green because right now it's it's outgassing something that uh, is called um, diatomic carbon. Other asteroids have, uh, and um, sorry, other comets have been known to have this uh, chemical in them, but they didn't appear green because they they evaporated a little right. bit differently as their ice got close to the sun. So um, there was a famous for Comet, Comet Hundred out there back in uh, 2019. We had uh, 2019 Borisov was a rogue comet. Um, uh, it was one of those interlopers. It also had this same uh, diatomic carbon presence in some, some degree. So is... Is there a different composition for every comet? Is each one different, I guess, is what I'm asking, like a snowflake? Yeah, it, it does seem that they all have small differences, but the idea is that if you get out to the Oort cloud, what you're viewing in comets is really primordial material uh, that has solidified from the very beginning of the solar system. So this would hmm. have been the gas and dust and ice that was present in the cloud that formed the sun and all of the planets. And so you kind of have a snapshot of what the um, what the solar system was made of at its formation, which is really cool. Um, there's lots of great things about comets. They do all appear to have their own individual characteristics. They all have a little bit of idiosyncrasies that we can uh, admire. And this comet in particular, getting better and better, is a great one to tell people about because I can guarantee you that over the next few days, 
your chances of being able to see this comet are going to increase and improve. I cannot promise you that it will ever be visible naked eye, though. So if you're looking with your eyeballs, Mm -hmm. you will not find it right now. It's actually dimmer than the star. Um, If you're ever out in the sky, you'll know you have trouble seeing from cities like Toronto. (laughs) So it's Mm. not particularly bright right now, but we're not that close to February first and second, which is when it has its first approach. So it could get brighter. And one of the great fun questions that everyone's asking themselves is, how bright will this comet get in the sky? Um, and how easy will it be to observe? And the answer is, actually, as we go closer to February 1st and 2nd, it's actually going to get easier to observe because it's going to be in the sky earlier in the evening. So if you're out tonight, uh, you are going to have to wait until about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning to see this comet. If you wait a couple days more t- towards uh, February 1st, the comet is actually up in the sky earlier in the evening, so even 8 p.m., which is a much more reasonable time for everyone to go, to go take a look. And uh, you sort of alluded to this, Elena, but because this doesn't come around very often, what can people like you learn from this passing? Well, what we can learn is a little bit about how this particular comet is composed. And depending on how we observe it with our telescopes, we can actually try to determine how much water does it have? How much of that diatomic carbon is in there with proportion to other things? What might this mean for the area of the Oort cloud that it came from? Um, and if you have a spectrograph, you can even actually pinpoint what elements are inside uh, the gas by looking at the light from the comet. So it's really, really fun for all of us astronomers. And even it's, it's one of those great things. It's, it's fun for uh, advanced astronomers and also amateurs. Everyone can have fun with this. When we think of comets, we think of things streaking across the sky. That's not the case here, though, is it? I mean, it is streaking, but it's so far away, It's it looks like a star? It will look, if you look through binoculars, it's going to look like a fuzzy blob. And if you look through slightly better binoculars, it'll look like a fuzzy green blob. But if you have a good telescope uh, right now, you can actually just start to see there is a bit of a tail coming off of this uh, comet. And, of course, if it does increase in brightness, we'll be able to distinguish features like the comet's tail more easily. So how do we see it? Any recommendations for when it does come closest, February 1 and 2? Uh, my recommendation is to get into a dark sky if you possibly can. If you are stuck in the city, even just your local park can be quite uh, quite good. And um, if you have a park where they turn off those overhead lamps, that will be even better. Um, and look up towards, uh, depending on exactly when you get up, if it's uh if it is February 1st, say, the uh, sort of near closest approach around 8 p.m., you'll want to kind of look overhead a little bit towards the, um, uh, the south but high in the sky. And um, if it's visible, that's where it will be. You might still need binoculars, though. So no promises on, on binoculars. And as you're out in the sky keeping an eye on it, I will just give a, a little shout-out for January 22nd. We actually have something that I can promise you, you will be able to see if it's at all clear. There's a, a very, very bright conjunction of Venus and Saturn just after sunset on January 22nd, which is coming up 
quite close. So if you're already out looking up, uh, spare a little a little bit of a thought towards the uh, the southwest on January 22nd after the sun goes down. Very very bright, two planets close together in the sky. Um, Always so uh, up there. <laughs> <laughs> Always something going on. Just look up. Dr. Elena Hyde with us, Director Alan Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University, talking about a green comet coming by February 1 and 2. Uh, your chance to see it. Uh, not with a naked eye, though. That might be tough. Elena, thanks for the time and insight. Always appreciate it. Be well. Yes. Happy viewing, everyone, and good luck. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, we talked about this with Bruce Winder a while ago. And, you know, you take it for what it is. But with the changing economy and the changing rates of inflation and interest rates and where we are going in this post-COVID world, is this uh, more of uh, uh, not only a reality, but a good idea. Uh, speaking of returning from Earth's distant past, Zellers is coming back to Canada this spring. Bruce Winder with his retail analyst and author, Retail Before, During, and After COVID. I've seen him on media all day talking about this. Bruce, thanks for your time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the program. So, Bruce, I remember talking to you about this several months ago. It may have even been before the pandemic, so it might have been a couple of years ago, about bringing back uh, Zellers. And as you mentioned, it was kind of a novelty thing, put in a certain amount of stores, where it's sort of a store within a store. But how has what we've seen with inflation and the economy and just where people's heads are trying to afford everything, how is this idea now different? Is it, is it different now? You know, it's a tough one because, I mean, I, I think I think the concept that HBC is trying to roll out isn't very different. I mean, what's changed, to your point, Scott, is the appetite for discount is yeah. a lot higher now because people are watching their money. That's why your folks like Walmart and Dollarama and Dollar Tree are doing really well. But the problem with the sellers coming back is that they're in Bay stores. And, you know, the way retail works is the more volume you sell, the lower prices you get, which you can pass on to customers. But if you're just dabbling in a few categories like Zellers is going to be, and you only have 25 little stores and base stores, you know, how are you going to be able to offer products that are competitive with Walmart and Dollarama and Dollar Tree? I don't think that it's going to work. Uh, where again, we talked about this before. Were they going to do this anyway? Uh, and and what were the reasons, or or what were the answers to those questions even before the pandemic and before, as you said, the appetite for discount? Well, there's something weird going on because what's happened is, um, you know, um, supposedly what's happened is, I guess Zellers may not have renewed the trademark. HBC may not have renewed the trademark for Zellers, and supposedly a Quebec company went out and grabbed the trademark for Zellers. And Kmart. So, so, you know, part of this uh, is, are they really sort of flexing their need for the brand to help take back that trademark? That's another issue too. Um, so, so we don't really know because they're a private company. They don't release much, right? We don't really know why they're doing it, but I don't think anything's changed. I think whenever they talk about sellers coming back, it creates a big discussion in the news cycle on social media and at dinner tables. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I'm just not sure it's going to move the needle for them from a sales and profit standpoint. Can stores like the you know the old Zellers and whatever the old ones were, can they even compete with something the size of a Walmart now? Not at all, no, not not at all. I mean, that, that's part of the reason why Zellers went away. I used to work for Zellers for a couple of years. I really liked it. 
But we were we were having a hard time competing with Walmart. I mean, Walmart's so big, right? And they buy so well and they do everything so well. It's really hard to compete against them. And that's why slowly, you know, Zeller slowly started to lose market share to Walmart as they ramped up. And uh, eventually it was a ship that was sinking so bad that, you know, they were better off selling it to Target. Uh, you said uh, earlier on uh, there's obviously with the with where things are uh, in the country and, and everywhere it appears uh, there's an appetite for discount. How is that changing retail? What are we seeing? Because remember during uh, the pandemic, oh the Roaring Twenties, it's going to be amazing, and I guess we saw that for a bit. But now things have changed. How is that appetite for discount changing retail? It's changing a lot. I mean, you look at the mix, the mix different of what people are buying, the sales mix. You know, look at grocery even as an example. There's a lot more tonnage now going through the discount grocery banners like Food Basics, No Frills, and Freshco versus their full-line versions, which is like Metro, Loblaws, and Sobeys. And what's also happening is even within stores now, uh, customers are buying more private label products because they're a little better value and cheaper. And retailers are going to be coming out with value-based products. They're coming out with products that maybe have a little less features and benefits at a little lower price point because they know Canadians have to stretch their money based on the price of gas and food. We, we talked earlier about the size of Walmart and how you can possibly compete. Many thought that would happen when Target came in, and we know where that experiment went. Is there any plan or any, will we see anything like that, like another big chain coming in? I, I'm not sure. You know, it's a great question. Probably not now because during recessionary times, in the U.S. and Canada, usually folks turtle. They don't really expand. They sort of, you know, just kind of harvest what they have and, and, and batten up the hatches for a tough storm. But down the road, you know, when we eventually get back to a growth cycle again, you might see, you know, Target do this one day. Again, it's, it's pretty tough, though, because they came up here. They could have succeeded up here. They should have succeeded up here. And they just failed, right? So, you know what? A lot of companies look at that and say, wow, I don't want to be the next Target. If they do open a store, it's usually sort of one or two at a time. And do a bit of a test and we'll see approach. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, talking about the possibility of Zellers coming back. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Take care. You remember that uh, all the chaos that we had last summer through traveling and passports and what have you. Then, of course, that was all supposed to be fixed for the Christmas holiday, and we know what happened there. And um, then as government does so well, they form a committee to look at things and bring people in, in front of this committee to blame, but nothing ever gets done. Uh, and there's a fascinating column in the National Post today by Kelly McFarland. Omar Algabra, our minister of transport, calling him the minister of wait and see. Given that all the feedback and uh, clarifying could take time, he's in no hurry to update the rules uh, when it comes to airline travel and um, the rules of engagement. Let's bring in Gabor Lucas, president, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, and is with us now. Gabor, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon, and well, thank you. So we remember after a terrible uh, summer season and the promise that things would be fixed by uh, the winter and, of course, the Christmas holidays and such, you had another committee or a committee called to review all of this. What was your take on this committee and, in your mind, anything accomplished? First of all, it's a very important committee. <laughs> it's not just an arbitrary committee, but rather it is a committee of members of parliament, of parliamentarians of all political parties. Uh, it is the Standing Committee on Transport that is studying what happened. And the work they are doing is important because it exposes some of the shortcomings of the 
existing regime for passenger protection and how airlines are skirting it. Is there anything new here? Many listening will say, well, yeah, but I thought that's what they were supposed to be doing. Well, um, I'm not sure airlines are not supposed to be skirting the law in any way. Uh, what this committee accomplishes is getting visibility to the issues. We right. here at Air Passenger Rights, of course, have been aware of the problems, but it has been somehow latent under the surface. Now it's really in our face, and it's in the face of the lawmakers, and it's the face of the government. And this may be providing the necessary push, impetus to finally improve the situation to some degree. I'm quite well, optimistic. I'm not holding my breath. I don't expect that the minister will put forward a perfect solution or even anything marginally necessarily reasonable to solve the problem. What I do hope is that the minister will at least put forward the legislation to improve the current situation. And then we can have a meaningful debate on whether that goes far enough and what other measures are needed to ensure that passengers are adequately protected. Uh, and the situation in 2017-18 is that now this is a minority government. So the um, Transport Committee mm. can amend uh, any legislation that comes before it. And in the House of Commons, um, parliamentarians can pass legislation that they feel that is going to fix passengers' situation. And a government is just a minority. Uh, by the winter months, February, March, we're back up into a peak season again for the winter, tra winter travel season, although obviously not as concentrated as what a Christmas holiday is, where everybody seems to go in a certain two-week period. It's certainly spread out a lot more. Are you expecting to see relief by then, or will three strikes, you're out? No, I mean, will, you, will we hope to see uh, real solutions by the time March rolls around, the March break? That heavily depends on the government's determination. And if I were to guess, I would say, unfortunately not. Many of the problems that need to be solved require not just changing the regulations, but also changing the legislation, the Canada Transportation Act. And that may take some time. I would certainly be very happy if in the meanwhile, the minister put forward some emergency orders that the cabinet has the power to make under Section 47 of the Canada Transportation Act. The Cabinet could also make amendments to the uh, air passenger protection regulations that fall within the scope of the primary legislation, and those things could be happening very, very swiftly if there was sufficient willpower. Uh, one journalist called this the Minister of Wait and See. Is he doing enough? Is he Is he addressing this? This government has not been doing much for passengers to begin with, and that's not just Minister Governor, but also his predecessor, uh, Minister Margarino. And generally, uh, since 2017, we have been cautioning that although Canada, of course, desperately needs a passenger protection regime, we need a European-style uh, gold-standard model and not the kind of substandard, subpar uh, regime that really benefits the airlines and not the passengers that uh, this government has put in place. The You're talking about really how, how, how to climb down the tree, as they say, for this government. The government needs to find a way to save face, change the legislation uh, without, without uh, losing too much face. Well, you talked about the European model. What would that look like? The European model... Uh, the uh, standard is payment of compensation, the exception is non-payment, and the airline faces a significant heavy burden of proof to demonstrate that an event 
was caused by extraordinary circumstances. And that would have to be something as extreme as an act of terrorism or um, sabotage or uh, the grounding of an aircraft of a specific model across the board, across all airlines by the manufacturer before the airline could avoid paying compensation. That is a simple regime that it makes it very easy for passengers and airlines and decision makers to decide and to determine whether compensation is actually owed to passengers. Gabor Lukacs with us, president of Air Passenger Rights Advocacy uh, Group. Obviously, we know it's been uh, having uh, what's been happening in airports and such, and trying to get in and out. Uh, a committee formed. Will we see results? Gabor, as always, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. As you heard, um, it, I thought this was very odd, but every single Ontario party that was running in the last uh, provincial election, uh, certainly the four main ones anyway, from the Greens, NDPs, Liberals and Conservatives, all said they were going to build a million homes or whatever their each numbers are or what have you, which is, I, I think, just astounding because I've never heard that before from um, you know, all of the parties at exactly the same time, making you wonder if they felt this way before, we probably wouldn't have been in this mess. Uh, and then, of course, it moves to the green belt and why we're touching the green belt uh, when the premier said he would not touch the green belt. Uh, and now there's chatter that uh, in these areas where the green belt has been open, that uh, developers uh, may have been tipped to buy that land. And then, of course, obviously, once it's approved, its uh, value greatly increases. So the Ontario... Uh, Integrity Commissioner and the Auditor General uh, will look into this, uh, the development of the Green Belt on, and this is acting on request from the NDP and uh, other opposition parties, and uh, looking into whether Housing Minister Steve Clark broke conflict of interest and insider information rules. Colin DeMello is here to break it down. Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He's with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Colin, give us an update on this. Uh, obviously, we know the story of, about this piece of the green belt being opened up, and now this uh, probe is being launched. What can you tell us, and where do we go from here? Well, I mean, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, politics, this is a pretty bad day for Premier Doug Ford and his government, because now you have two independent bodies uh, attached to the Ontario legislature who will now be investigating basically the government, uh, at least some members of it. The Auditor General is going to be looking at value for money and whether or not, you know, the sale of some of these properties uh, that were once included in the green belt and then removed from the green belt, if, you know, taxpayers really got uh, the value of what these lands uh, could have or should have been, right? So a property that was in the green belt would have sold for a lot less than a property that was outside of the green belt provincially owned. So she's going to be looking at whether or not there was a value for the taxpayer dollar. The integrity commissioner is going to be looking at whether ethics rules were violated. MPPs at Queen's Park have to abide by a certain set of rules uh, the, uh, under the MPP Integrity Act. And that stipulates that, you know, they cannot share privileged information with members of the public who could financially benefit from that privileged information if they knew about that beforehand. And that is really the central allegation here, that the government may have tipped off some of these developers, allowing them to, in some cases, purchase the land just before the news went public. And all of a sudden, the land they bought 
for you know hundreds of millions or tens of millions is now potentially worth billions of dollars so those two twin investigations are now going to you know um uh, start and that's going to be you know some pretty bad political news for premier doug ford um isn't this viewed as good news because it's transparency we get to see we get to see what's going on well, that's exactly it, right? Members of the NDP, the Liberals, and the Green Party, they have a lot of questions about exactly what happened here. Now, they have more suspicions than they actually have hard evidence of exactly what's happened because, you know, they're not the ones who are tasked with investigating this. That's not really what they do. They have a lot of researchers who have kind of connected a couple of things. So for the NDP, as an example, one direct connection that they're trying to make between the Minister of Housing and these developers is the former chief of staff to Steve Clark. Um, So this gentleman worked for Minister Steve Clark from 2021 until April of 2022. He then left and was appointed as the uh, CEO of the Ontario Home Builders Association. You can obviously tell that, you know, the Ontario Home Builders Association would have direct ties with a lot of those developers or at least some kind of relationship. So the NDP is raising this question. Well, did this individual have knowledge of this deal that was going to happen and pass it on uh, to some of those developers as kind of a, you know, heads up, this is going to happen, get in on this deal while the getting is good. That is one of the central questions that they've raised. And, and the integrity commissioner, as an example, has the ability to actually compel documents and has the ability to ask people to come and testify um, in front of him. In 2018, he had launched an investigation into the OPP and whether, uh, you know, the premier influence the uh, appointment of the new head of the OPP because Ron Tavener, a friend of the Ford family, Mm. uh, was suddenly appointed as the head of the OPP. And the integrity commissioner was able to talk to, you know, a variety of people in government, whether they were behind the scenes or ministers as well, uh, to kind of get down to the bottom of the situation. So there is a lot of power that the integrity commissioner has uh, to actually investigate what happened. Uh, yeah, this is um, this is going to be fascinating, going to be interesting. And, and again, the public needs transparency. Let me ask you this, Colin, because um, I've heard this, because many people are asking, like, why is Doug uh, Ford opening the Greenbelt when he said he wasn't going to touch the Greenbelt? Uh, and we obviously know about how much housing that they have to build. But we're hearing that the reasons that they're nibbling away at the Greenbelt is because the land that's in municipalities already, they're not servicing, they're not touching, they're creating so much red tape that these projects these homes can't be built uh that's the reason they're nibbling into the green belt is there any validity to that well if you take a step back i mean the province had commissioned a report in terms of what the housing needs were going to be by 2030 and this report had identified that ontario would need about 1.5 million homes over the course of that 10 years in order to really satisfy the demand not just the demand from you know within ontario but the demand from uh hundreds of thousands of immigrants uh who will be you know coming into canada and and potentially choosing ontario as their home Uh, that report had identified that Ontario doesn't have a land problem. It has, you know, a housing supply problem. And Hmm. that it said that the government needed to increase the number of houses built. So the province hasn't really been able to keep up with its targets, right? To build 1.5 million homes in 10 years, you would need about 150,000 homes being built every single year for 10 years. And, and the province hasn't really kept up with that pace of construction, which is why the government has been trying to do everything it can in its power to, you know, cut down on the red tape, make sure that, uh, you know, municipalities are not um, duplicating 
facilitating the process when it comes to uh, examining, uh, you know, whether these uh, these construction projects are, are meeting all the regulations that the pro- that the municipalities put on it. So it's it's trying to do two things at the same time, right? It's been trying to fast track construction by really reducing the red tape at the municipal level and, and there could be more to come on on that front so that's one of the reasons why a lot of people have been raising questions about this green belt deal they're saying well wait a second if your own report has suggested you don't need the space there's enough space in ontario to build it's just you need to get these buildings up a little bit faster why would you need to open up the green belt in the first place and the but other again uh, for, is, for, so I, so go ahead Colin go ahead yeah go ahead and sorry yeah the you know the developers who own this land in some cases they bought this a long time ago so they're speculators and they you know purchased this land sat on it hopefully maybe it would come out of the green belt in other cases one in particular they bought the land in September in the and then this decision was made in November, right? They bought the land just a couple of weeks before the decision was announced by the government. And that's where everyone is kind of looking at this yeah. with a lot of suspicion saying, what did they know? And why would they have purchased this land if it was useless just a few weeks before this decision was made? Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Navigating dry January, the release of new low-risk drinking guidelines by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction uh, have given an update. First update uh, for guidelines in 11 years, and it drastically reduces the amount of alcohol consumption that is considered to be safe by health experts. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Catherine Parody is with us, Interim Associate Director, Research, Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addicto, uh, Addicto uh, served as co-chair of the project to develop the new guidance. Uh, Catherine, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation. So, uh, obviously, um, uh, the, the guidelines have changed drastically, some are saying, from what they, they used to be. Why, why this sudden change? What is, what's different now? Why now? Well, it's been more than a decade since we previously developed low-risk alcohol drinking guidelines. So as you can imagine, in science, a decade is very long. And hmm. so in that time period, we've had time to uh, uh, gain a much better understanding of the relationship between alcohol and several diseases, including Cancer, seven types of cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, so some that are quite prevalent in our country. Um, moreover, whenever we do these types of, uh, of analysis, you know, what, what we're always looking at is sort of the, the, the harm experienced by people who drink compared to people who don't drink. And previous studies that were a decade old uh, tended to misclassify this group of people who do not drink. In there, not only did we have people who've never consumed alcohol for personal or religious reasons, for example, but we also had people who were very sick 
who had drank so much previously that they could no, no longer drink or people with serious disease on medication that, you know, for whom alcohol was just not a possibility. So basically we're comparing our drinkers with people who were quite sick. So that gave the impression that people drinking a li little were, were, were much healthier. But now that we've refined our methodologies, we're seeing that this protective effect that we used to see does not seem to hold so much anymore. So are, are we, is that just being proven in, in, in numbers and numbers increasing? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's just being proven in the fact that when, without going too technical, but when we're looking at the risk curves, associating the risk between uh, uh, the, the amount you drink and your risk of harm, it used to be what we call a J-shaped curve, that people who were drinking very little were experiencing benefits. That's no longer the case. And I mean, the results that we found are, are by no stretch of the imagination, uh, uh, controversial. As a matter of fact, you know, the, the, uh, the WHO came out with a report earlier this month saying that there's absolutely no level, no safe or healthy amount of alcohol consumption. So the reason we thought the way we did 11 years ago was because of inadequate research and an inadequate sample. Is that accurate? No, I, I would not say inadequate. I, I mean, research evolves all the time. At the time mm -hmm. that we did the previous guidelines, that was the best science that was available to us, the best mm -hmm. evidence that we have. We had at the time in 10, 11 years, uh, uh, more refined methodology, better studies. We get, we get better at doing what we do and, and we're able then to provide people with better advices. Just like, you know, throughout history, food guys get revised or, 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 or recommendations regarding tobacco have evolved over the years. That's just the nature of science. Uh, any relation to the global pandemic that we've uh, just been through? It, it, does that play a role in any of this, Catherine? It did not play a role in our analysis per se, but I think that it gives perhaps even more importance to the results and perhaps because really those results, and again, I think that's super important to, to, to point out. There's a little revolution with those results, not only in their numbers, but in the way they're presented to the, to the population. You know, in 2011, we were saying women no more than 10 per week and men no more than 15 per week. And if you were drinking much uh, higher level, much more than that, you know, like this, this, this was not palatable to you. How were you going to go about that? Now, this time we're saying, you know what? Any reduction in your alcohol use is, is, is beneficial for you. Any, any drinks you cut down, you will experience, uh, immediate effects and long-term effects. But moreover, what we're saying to people is that these are the facts. These are, these are, uh, uh levels of risk associated with, uh, uh, different amounts of alcohol and, once you're aware of that, decide what is best for you, you know, and decide whether mm -hmm. you need yourself to reduce uh, uh, your drinking or not. Uh, lots of debate about warning labels on alcohol. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, of course, my thoughts on that. I mean, we, we are recommending to people that they should consider reducing their alcohol use if they find themselves in a level of risk where they're not so comfortable. Now, we're asking people to count their drinks. How are you going to go about that? No one has the slightest idea of what exactly is a standard drink. The only way to figure that out now, right now is if you go to the liquor store, you multiply milliliters by percentage of alcohol and divide that by 17.05. Who's going to do that? No one. So why don't we have labels on alcohol containers that would just make it so clear to people? This can of beer contains 0.5 standard drink or two standard drink so that people who are interested, who are curious, who would like to assess how much they're drinking could do so. As simple as that. People have a right to know. Just provide them with the information so that then people can make the decisions they'd like to do, they'd like to take and what, what they feel is 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 best for them. Dr. Catherine Parody with us, Interim Associate Director, Research, Canadian Centre on Substance Use. And uh, what they're saying is there's no amount of alcohol that is safe and recommends no more than two drinks a week for men and women, uh, changing uh, the guidelines that we've been seeing for the last decade or so. Catherine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, you remember of uh, you remember about the uh, Burlington Street sewage spill back in November. Uh, this in regard to um, you know houses that were incorrectly piped into uh, stormwater sewers as opposed to uh, sewers uh, that uh, will be treated uh, for waste and that sort of thing, wastewater, toilets, etc. And now uh, the media is receiving an update from the city of Hamilton on the ongoing response related to the discovery of the Burlington Street sewage spill back in November. Today, the city was served with a provincial order from the Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks. Uh, what that all means, let's bring in Nick Winters, Director, Hamilton Water, and with us now. Nick, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. So what can you explain about what happened today? Uh, the city has been served with a provincial order from the Ministry of the Environment. Um, what does that mean? Uh, have we been proactive enough with this, with the ministry and with the province? So I think since discovery of the November 22nd spill last year, uh, we have been proactive enough. Um, you know, the fact that we've been expecting uh, an order uh, from the ministry. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, you know, we thought maybe we'd get it before um, uh, the new year, uh, but it just came today. Um, and I think it really speaks to uh, the fact that, the you know, the ministry is engaged in, in issues that impact the environment here. And, and they've got some things that they would like the city to do uh, to make sure that, um, we're uh, ensuring that our wastewater system is operating the way that uh, that we as city staff expect it to, as well as our community does. Uh, some of these orders are difficult for the layperson to understand. Uh, we're having a hard time trying to decipher all this. Can you summarize the latest order from the MOE and what the city has to do to comply? Uh, certainly I can. Um, it speaks to a couple different things. Uh, one, uh, the ministry is looking for us to make some enhancements to uh, a sampling program that we have in place. This is this is sampling uh, stormwater and surface water looking for evidence of any impacts from city infrastructure, such as, such as our wastewater system. So they're looking for us to identify uh, new locations to sample uh, that may uh, identify whether or not there's some of these cross-connected sewers present. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, they are looking for us to complete an evaluation 
of some different uh, inspection methods for the sewer system uh, to uh, determine whether or not there's more of these uh, cross-connected sewers out there as well. So there's a couple of different ways to do that. And, and, you know, based on my interpretation after initial review, they would like us to compare and contrast those different methods and, uh, and uh, identify uh, pros, cons, costs, timelines, uh, things like that, and then report back to them on, on those details as well as what we as the utility operators think is the best way to move forward. Are these new procedures, new asks that you have not been asked for in the past? Is this a change of, of direction in any way? So it is a change of direction. Um, you know, unfortunately, and you know, I can say this based on my 18 years uh, in the wastewater industry, um, Hamilton's uh, wastewater inspection and maintenance programs are no different uh, than our municipal peers uh, around Ontario. And in some cases, we've got programs that, that other municipalities don't. Uh, but none of our existing programs uh, would have likely uh, would have been like to, likely to have identified either of these two cross-connected sewer situations, at least not in a timely uh, manner. So we are being asked to um, make recommendations for some new inspection or maintenance programs that are going to uh, help us as staff, uh, help our community uh, know that we're actively looking to see if there's other situations like this and that we're finding them in a timely manner and correcting them. Uh, how difficult will it be for Hamilton to comply with this or will it? So at this point, I don't have any concerns with our ability to comply with the asks or the deadlines. Um, you know, what I would say is that any uh, program that we implement uh, to inspect, you know, a, what is a very large sewer system and try and identify uh, these types of issues, it's not something that's going to happen overnight or within three months. Uh, any program that we implement is going to be uh, something that takes a longer period of time. And, and honestly, it will probably require some ongoing effort for a number of years. Uh, so the big question to me and my team is, is how do we accelerate that, uh, make sure that we're uh, doing that work in a way that's going to be as effective as possible, as quick as possible, and at the lowest uh, cost to our ratepayers. We've talked about this before, but obviously Hamilton is a very old city, whether you look at Hamilton, Kingston, or Toronto. Um, uh, does this require different methods, a different process than some of those other municipalities around us? Uh, I wouldn't say different, no. I mean, one of the things that I, I would uh, hope that the community uh, can appreciate uh, is that this is not a Hamilton-specific issue. Uh, these types yeah. of cross-connected sewers uh, do occur uh, in any sewer system, particularly older combined sewer systems. And we did have programs in place, as do other municipalities, to look for this type of, of um, situation. Um, but, you know, clearly we need to we need to make some improvements to those existing programs to do a better job in, in some of the oldest areas of our sewer system. So what are the next immediate steps, Nick? So we're going to get together as a team tomorrow and start to formulate our plans to uh, comply with these requirements and the deadlines. Uh, we will be bringing a report to the city's public works committee on February the 13th. So we can talk to city council about the ministry order, what it means, the implications, uh, what we've started to do in order to comply with those deadlines, and then what the next steps look like uh, even after that. Nick Winters with us, Director Hamilton Water, talking about uh, sewage situations and how we rectify this moving forward in the city of Hamilton. Nick, thank you for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You too. 
You know, I, I've, I've felt that the last uh, week or so politically have been have been fascinating um, in the set, whether you want to talk about health care and, you know, the provinces and the prime minister, you know, not meeting, not, you know, blah, 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 blah. we want conditions, we want money, we want this, we want that. And then all of a sudden you have um, at least the first step of a solution with what Doug Ford has announced uh, yesterday uh, in regard to reforming health care and adding more. It's really not nothing new. It's just adding more of, of what we are already doing. Jugmeet Singh today of the NDP uh, chastising the prime minister uh, for approving any of this or letting it go. Meanwhile, we all know the story. They were going to meet and they weren't going to meet and uh, they wanted conditions. Doug Ford said no problem. Uh, and then, you know, we are where we are. Uh, Jugmeet Singh still professing that we need to hire more doctors and more nurses and just keep shoveling more money into uh, the old system, which to me, it was it's kind of like trying to sell us on a rotary phone. I mean, I think we've all come to the conclusion we have to change the template here. Um, so then I'm thinking about all of this and, 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 you know, my political thoughts and such. And, you know, and I was thinking to myself, have we just gotten tired of the extreme politics that we live in? It's either, you know, you do all, you know, it's either privatization or public. It's either this or that. It's like one extreme or the other. And, you know, I've had this discussion many times on the show, but as I'm listening to Jugmeet Singh, I'm thinking, this is kind of hypocritical. No, it is, because he's the person that could bring this party down or get whatever he wants out of them because he's propping them up as our, what used to be, left of center liberals have now gone to the extreme left and partnered with the NDP. So my question for Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, we're going to bring him on in a sec, is are Canadians hoping that whoever the new leader of the Liberal Party is, that it will take them back to left of center instead of extreme left, which is where they find themselves with the NDP. Nelson Wiseman with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. He's with us now. Nelson, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Nelson, do, do Canadians have a hankering for this Liberal Party to get their party back to centre-left as opposed to extreme left, which has created lots of divisiveness and and what we're seeing today? Are Canadians, and, and I'm wondering if the acceptance acceptance of these new health care reforms are finally the centre speaking up. Well, uh, two things I would say. First, I don't accept the characterization of the Liberals as extreme leftists, or for that matter, I don't accept uh, that the NDP are extreme leftists. Sure, they're asking for more money to be put into the system, and that's what the provinces are asking. Uh, So uh, let's remember um, that when you put the Liberal and the NDP vote together, that uh, that is the overwhelming majority of Canadians. Right now, there are polls out. Uh, I saw one today that suggests the Conservatives are ahead of the Liberals. They are. But the Conservatives are clearly right of center. The Liberals have mm-hmm. always tried to present themselves as being in the center. But I would agree that under Paul Martin and now under uh, Trudeau, uh, they've shifted more with more focus on social policy, I would say, than on economic or business policy. And, uh, uh, you know, about uh, privatization versus public, uh, we already have a mix. 
the question is, uh, how is it going to change? And of course, the NDP is going to oppose any hint of privatization. Uh, but the the line that, well, we should hire more doctors and nurses, it's not as if there are unemployed doctors and nurses out there. The real challenge right now is that uh, uh, hospitals uh, sort of raiding each other. That That's a problem. There are a lot of problems in the system. I, you know, I'm not an expert on health yeah. on, uh, on healthcare, but I but I am a political scientist, so it's normal. It's it, it, In federal provincial relations, you've always had the provinces asking for more from the federal government because the federal government has more resources. We pay now, more in federal taxes than we do in provincial taxes. But a big challenge, uh, you know, you mentioned Doug Ford, is that because health care is administered provincially, You've got different provinces that want to go in slightly different directions. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the federal government wants to make sure that whatever money it puts in, it'll get some credit for it. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking, and, and we'll agree to disagree, which really many people don't do uh, nowadays, Nelson, about how far left uh, either the Liberals or the NDP have gone. Um, but I think clearly we hopefully can agree on that they've gone way farther left than what they were uh, to, to call them center-left. I mean, I, I think they've gone beyond that now. And I guess my question for you, Nelson, is are Canadians – wanting a change from that? Are Canadians wanting more of a centrist view where we get opinion from the left and the right and then come up to a solution as opposed to my way's right, your way's wrong, and that's the end of it? Well, mm, you know, that's sort of the same question you put at the beginning. Yes. Again, I don't accept the characterization that... uh, the government is way out there left wing. It's not as if, for example, would you say that it's, would you say that it's just left of center? I mean, it's clearly gone a lot farther left. It's clearly gone a lot farther left than what it has been prior to Justin Trudeau. Is that fair? Uh, Well, uh, you know, I actually, what I would say is that uh, Trudeau sounds very much to me like Paul Martin. Because remember, when Paul Martin was in power almost 20 years ago, he kept talking about fixing health care for a generation. He kept talking about insisting on, on, on provinces reporting on all of these um, uh, standards and, and that uh, provinces would pick up uh, best practices from each other. So that isn't um, new to me. What is new is the revolutionary changes that have taken place in health care. So that, remember, the Canada Health Act first came in in the 1960s, and, you know, Uh it was slightly revised in the 80s, but healthcare now is completely different. I mean, pharmaceuticals play a role that they once didn't, Um, and, and training is completely different in terms of specialization, the reduction of family doctors the fact that different provinces have gone in different directions, that's what the big changes have been. It isn't that the the feds and the provinces um, have been acting that differently. Uh, Even under conservative governments, 
federal conservative governments, we haven't had much changes. And indeed, I would say, what really is the big difference between whatever Doug Ford is saying now and what the liberals were saying before, or even the NDP before that? They've all claimed that the federal government should give them more money. Uh, that being said, how do you uh, what, uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that we've come to this solution um, as we have in, in the last day or so? My first thought was, well, that seemed easy. Why did this take so long? Oh, that's a good question. I'll tell you why. Because the prime minister doesn't want a meeting with all the premiers in which they're all going to be saying the same thing. So it'll be. 10 to 1 against them, the optics don't look good. So I want to, it's not that everything's come together. We still don't really know uh, what, what it is that's going to change dramatically. And I don't think things will change dramatically. What we did know is that the federal government committed itself to giving more money. And, and negotiations have been going on behind the scenes uh, for months and months. So it, 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 that isn't new, and and it's not surprising that we're having the deal this year, uh, whatever that deal is. There will be a ballpark figure of money, and I don't know what the specific conditions are uh, for different provinces, and it could be. I, I suspect the federal government is not going to fight as aggressively when we have creeping privatization in certain areas, which Ford has been hinting at. And the Canadian public, for the most part, in my opinion, and different people have different, doesn't really care as no. long as they can get attended to it, yeah. promptly. That's what they want. They don't want to wait eight or 18 months to have a hip operation or a knee operation when they're in, in pain. They don't want to wait 14 hours in emergency to have somebody look at them. They don't want to, they want to have a family doctor. In the 60s, that wasn't an issue. Hmm. Nelson Wiseman with us, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, talking about everything political, and as always, healthcare gets in there. Nelson, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say the announcement to clear surgeries by the Ford government is far from perfect, but it does use present available resources to make a positive step in the right direction. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.